Hi, Journey. Great to see every single one of you today. I'm coming to you via video today because a Journey family, a gal who taught a couple of our kids, uh, Preston first and then Jasmine over at Highlight Elementary a few years back, and then eventually she started hanging out around Journey, and then we got the privilege of helping her a couple of years ago come to faith in Christ, and then a little while after that she started serving in base camp, and then I got to do her wedding this past summer, and then real sadly, our friend's mom died on New Year's Eve, and so I'm serving them this weekend by leading a couple of different memorial gatherings with them, and I know, right, like we have all these fantastic pastor, teacher, leader people around Journey. I could have asked any of a number of them to preach this weekend. They would have Gladly, they would have done absolutely a stellar job, just like they always do, right? But I really wanted to preach this message. I really wanted to preach this message. I didn't want to farm this one out. I didn't want to give this one away. Thus, I'm with you via video today. And we are going to land the World's Greatest Wrestler series today. It's a bummer. I'm sad that we're closing this thing down but first, before we get back to the story of Jacob from the Old Testament of the Bible, I want to share something of a pretty personal nature that I've been wrestling with, wrestling through, over the course of the past couple of weeks. This wrestling match all started back on the evening of December the 20th. Uh, the entire Hopkins family slipped into the back of the Wilson Auditorium to watch our daughter Bailey perform in Hawthorne Elementary School's holiday program. It's all about food, marshmallows, hot chocolate, with something else. And as you know, it goes over there at the Wilson Auditorium. The teeming masses of Hawthorne friends and family were trying to shoehorn their way into the way overstuffed Wilson Auditorium. And uh, we got there early enough. We took our seats. We took up nearly an entire row. There's just a couple of leftover seats on one end. I was sitting next to those empty seats wondering just how exactly that was going to go as hundreds of seat-hungry people were about to spot those two empty seats and I happened to notice our friend Tara Bradford. She was there hunting for a spot herself. She was going to watch her daughter in the holiday program singing about marshmallows and hot chocolate. And so I saw Tara. I motioned her over and invited her to join us, which she did. She took her into the row seat, very grateful, of course, for a spot to sit. She immediately handed her phone to me, which had on its screen a very grainy, barely visible photograph cut from a website of four little girls whose ages were not at all discernible from this very grainy picture. She handed her phone to me and said, those are four sisters from the Democratic Republic of Congo. They're in an orphanage in the Congo. Know anyone who would want to adopt them. I looked at the phone, I attempted to look at the picture for about three seconds, and I said, hmm, I'll keep my ears peeled. I quickly passed the phone down the row a few seats to my wife, Dana, repeating exactly what Tara had said, know anyone who would want to adopt these four little girls from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Of course, Dana, she studied that photograph diligently for a couple of minutes. She looked at me sort of shrugged her shoulders, passed the phone back down the row. I handed it to Tara, right? Like, no big deal. 
no big deal. But I'm telling you, what happened in Dana's heart when she saw those four little sisters was a very big deal. I think the way you would say it would be to say that there was a seed that was planted in Dana's heart right there in the back of the Wilson Auditorium on December 20th, a few weeks ago now, and that seed sprouted, and that seed started growing pretty rapidly, and remember, nothing took root in my heart that night. I barely looked at the picture, remember. I passed the phone right on down to Dana, telling Tara, I'll keep my ears peeled because, well, we were already waiting in line to adopt one baby girl from the Congo, and so I have it in my head, my heart, that we're just going to wait for her. It was about a week later or so, the seed that the Lord had planted in Dana on December 20th had grown into a full-grown giant sequoia. And she was, I mean, like, like, wow. She was convinced that those four sisters were supposed to be our daughters, our kids, adopted by us, brought to our house, part of our family. I, on the other hand, was anything but convinced for all of the reasons that you'd expect. Like, we already have eight kids. Like, the concern I carry with me on an everyday basis about my ability to be a good dad to eight children, let alone 12. Concerns like, can I really truly shepherd the hearts of eight kids, let alone a dozen? Concerns like, where's the money for that going to come from? Concerns like, how in the world are they all going to fit into our house? And on and on and on it went. And for quite a few days thereafter, here's exactly what was happening to me. My friend Peter Holmes puts it like this quite aptly. Most of the time, he says, our brains are the devil's playgrounds when the Lord is speaking directly into our heart. Ever had that experience? And so after a few days of intense conversation, I mean like very intense conversation with Dana, a few very intense days of wrestling with the Lord, honestly, more with myself than with the Lord, what I began to realize was that the Lord had made it really, really clear in my heart, right here, that we were absolutely supposed to adopt those four sisters. But the devil was having a heyday with my mind, trying to convince me in the cerebral that we shouldn't, for all the reasons that I just shared it, and even more than that. So I tell you all that to tell you that on this past Monday, quite unceremoniously, Dan and I, in one accord, gave our word that we're going to adopt those four little girls and bring them home and make them part of our family just as quickly as we possibly can. And that means we're going to be a family of a dozen kids. I can barely even say that. A dozen kids. And, uh, well, would you like to see them? Yeah, yeah, yeah here, here they are. And this is Mimi, and she's six. And that's Therese, and she's four. And that's Marie, and she's two. And that's Jenna Rose, and she's one. And precocious, I can tell. There they are. And uh, we're still saying, wow. And uh, we would be really, really grateful for any prayers that you might offer on our behalf as we 
venture into all of this new uncharted territory for us. Thank you too for all of your encouragement. Some of you know about this and you've been very encouraging and uh, that puts steel in our spine. So thank you for that. Okay, we're talking about the world's greatest wrestler. His name is Jacob. That's exactly right. And we started talking about how Jacob wrestled with everyone in his world, didn't he? It was his MO for all of his growing up years, most of his adult years, honestly. He wrestled and he grappled and he scratched and he clawed his way to get whatever it was that he wanted, remember. And then we talked about how Jacob wrestled with God. He got to wrestle with God. One night, God literally showed up and threw Jacob down, not on the mat, but on the banks of the Jabbok River. And that was a transformative experience for Jacob. He, he was changed. And he wasn't just changed because, remember, God wrenched him in a very painful place. But he was changed because God finally had Jacob's entire and undivided attention. And in that moment, Jacob gave up all of his manipulative, all of his conniving ways. He was all done going his way. From then on, he said, God, I'm going your way. Right, you picture the scene. Jacob's all tied up in this knot with God, clenching him with everything that he has in him. And he says, I'm sticking with you, God. I'm not letting go of you, God. No matter how long it takes, no matter where your road leads, I'm sticking with you. And you'd just think, wouldn't you, that after that kind of an encounter with God, after you'd literally, physically wrestled with God, had the kind of transformative encounter that Jacob had with him, you'd just think that all of a sudden, Everything that you used to be about, once you had given all that up, once you dedicated yourself to going God's way in God's time, you'd just think that life thereafter would go real nice, real smooth, real blessed, wouldn't you? Right, you win that kind of a wrestling match, a wrestling match with God, and you'd just think that it ought to be real clear sailing right after. So let's check in with Jacob. Let's see how it's going. Is that really the case, Genesis chapter 33, starting in verse 1, if you have a text, or you're welcome to follow along with me. Then Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming with his 400 men. So what, what just happened here is Jacob is limping. The wrestling match had just gotten over. You imagine that God has now returned to heaven or wherever exactly it was that he was going after the wrestling match. And then like right then, right then, Jacob looked up and saw twin brother Esau coming with his 400 men. Army, remember. So what's he do? He divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and his two servant wives. He put the servant wives and their children at the front. Leah and her children next. Rachel and Joseph last. That is a least favorite to most favorite deal going on there. Least favorite to most favorite. Then Jacob went on ahead. As he approached his brother, he bowed to the ground seven times before him, just to make sure that they all took seven times he bows down. Then Esau ran, watch this, ran to meet him. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him initiated all by Esau, ran to meet him, embraced him, 
threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they both wept. Of course they wept. Of course they wept. Over 20 years it's been. And then Esau looked at the women and children and asked a great question. Who are these people with you? These are the children God has graciously given to me, your servant, Jacob replied. Then the servant wives came forward with their children and bowed before him. Next came Leah with her children. They bowed before him. Finally, Joseph and Rachel came forward and all bowed before him. And what were all the flocks and herds I met as I came, Esau asked. Remember, Jacob had sent all those gifts on ahead. You know, they just keep coming, a servant with a herd, a servant with a herd, a servant with a herd. And Jacob replied, they're a gift, my Lord, to ensure your friendship. I'm just buying you off here, trying to buy you off here, to make sure that you're not going to kill me. My brother, I have plenty, Esau answered. You, you don't have to buy me off. Keep what you have for yourself. But Jacob insisted, no, if I have found favor with you, please accept this gift from me. And what a relief to see your friendly smile, Jacob says. It is like seeing the face of God. Powerful statement, isn't it? Because Jacob would have just seen the face of God. He just wrestled with him not very long ago. Please take this gift I have brought you, for God has been very gracious to me. I have more than enough. And because Jacob insisted, Esau finally accepted the gift. Okay, I'll, I'll take it. Well, Esau said, party's over right? Let's be going. It's time for us to go. I'll lead the way. We're going to all go together, is Esau's thinking. But Jacob replied, you can see, my Lord, some of the children are very young. The flocks and herds have their young too. If they're driven too hard, like I expect you drive, Esau, even for one day, all the animals could die. Please, my Lord, go on ahead of your servant. Go on ahead of me, Jacob says. We will follow slowly at a pace that is comfortable for the livestock and the children. I will meet you at Seir. All right, Esau said, but at least let me assign some of my 400 men to guide and protect you. I got this army. Take them, use them. And Jacob responded, that's not necessary. It's enough that you've received me warmly, my Lord. So Esau turned around and started back to Seir that same day. Jacob, on the other hand, traveled on to Sukkot. There he built himself a house. He made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place was named Sukkot, which means shelters. Later, having traveled all the way from Paddan Aram, Jacob arrived safely at the town of Shechem in the land of Canaan. There he set up camp outside the town. Jacob bought the pot of, plot of land where he camped from the family of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver. And he built an altar and named it El Elohei Israel. That's amazing. What an amazing narrative. It is crystal clear sailing for Jacob. All the fear, all the agony, all the nightmares that Jacob had about meeting up with his long estranged brother Esau, they didn't even come close to materializing. It is this beautiful, God-ordained reunion. Here they are. And something amazing about that interaction, that encounter with Jacob and Esau, did you notice all of the credit that Jacob gave to God in that scene? Remember Esau asked Jacob, who in the world are all these people with you? What's Jacob's answer? These are all the children that who's given me? God. These are all the children that God's given me. And that's worship, isn't it? 
God is getting all of the credit, all of the praise, all the adoration. It isn't at all about Jacob anymore. It's all about God, which is completely indicative of this brand new Jacob. He's different. He's an entirely different guy. And a little bit later in that same narrative, Esau asked, what's up with all the flocks and all the herds that are, you're trying to pawn off on me, all your servants giving me all this stuff? And Jacob says, well, those are, they're, they're gifts for you. They're tokens of our relationship. Jacob's saying, I, I've got plenty. And Esau's going, I, I have plenty too. I don't need them. You should keep them. And what's Jacob say? Who's been so gracious to him? God. God's been so gracious to me. He's blessed me. Look at everything he's given me. I have plenty. Please, just take them. Jacob wears Esau down and he relents. He accepts the gifts. And he really can't help but notice how effusive Jacob's praise is to God. His provision. He's different. He's new. That encounter, that wrestling match with God, it truly changed him, transformed him. He isn't the same guy anymore. And then Esau invites Jacob, come on, let's go. But for some reason, Jacob doesn't want to go with Esau. We don't know why. Maybe Jacob doesn't trust Esau fully. Maybe Jacob has some other motivation. We don't know the why exactly, but we do know that the twin brothers, they separate. Esau goes his way. Jacob goes his way. Jacob ends up in Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Now remember about Jacob's transformation. It was based, wasn't it, on his commitment to cling to God with a vice-like grip. I'm not letting go of you, God. God, I'm with you. That's Jacob's cry. And we pick up the narrative again in Genesis 34, starting in verse 1. One day Dinah, the daughter of Jacob and Leah, went to visit some of the young women who lived in the area. When you look at the Hebrew, Dinah really, she's going to go out bar hopping with some of the ladies from the area. She's going to go hang out with them, and they're not going to like have a Tupperware party, and they're not going to knit together. They're going to go carousing. They're going to hang out in the seedy areas of Shechem. But when the local prince Shechem, son of Hammer, the Hivite, what a name, saw it, when he saw Dinah, what's he do? He seized her and raped her. He seized her and raped her. But then he fell in love with her. And he tried to win her affection with tender words. Some guy, huh? Some guy. And so he says to his father, Hamor, give me this young girl. I want to marry her. Soon Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter, Dinah. But since his sons were out in the field herding his livestock, he said nothing until they returned. And we don't know exactly how long that was, but he's passive, entirely passive, until the sons come home. Hamor, Shechem's father, came to discuss the matter with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the field as soon as they heard what had happened. News travels fast. The brothers pick up on it. They were shocked and furious that their sister had been raped. Shechem had done a disgraceful thing against Jacob's family, something that should never be done. Hamor tried to speak with Jacob and his sons. My son Shechem is truly in love with your daughter, he said. Please let him marry her. In fact, let's arrange other marriages too. Let's get all about this. You give us your daughters for our sons. We will give you our daughters for your sons. And you may live among us. The land is open to you. Settle here. Trade with us. 
feel free to buy property in the area. Then Shechem himself spoke to Dinah's father and brothers. Please be kind to me. Let me marry her, he begged. I will give you whatever you ask, no matter what dowry or gift you demand. I will gladly pay it. Just give me the girl as my wife. But since Shechem had defiled their sister Dinah, Jacob's sons responded deceitfully to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, we couldn't possibly allow this because you're not circumcised. You don't have the God's good housekeeping seal of approval on you. It would be a disgrace for our sister to marry a man like you. But here's a solution. If every man among you will be circumcised, will get God's good housekeeping seal of approval on you like we have, like we are, then we will give you our daughters and we'll take your daughters for ourselves. We'll live among you and become one people. But if you don't agree to be circumcised, we'll take her and be on our way. We're out of here. Hamor and his son Shechem agreed to their proposal. Shechem wasted no time in acting on this request, for he wanted Jacob's daughter desperately. Shechem was a highly respected member of his family. He went with his father Hamor to present this proposal to the leaders at the town gate. They're going to have a city council meeting of sorts. These men are our friends, they said. Let's invite them to live here among us and trade freely. Look, the land is large enough to hold them. We can take their daughters as wives and let them marry ours, but they will consider staying here and becoming one people with us only, there's a condition to all of this wonderful scenario, only if all of our men are circumcised just as they are. And you can sort of hear the gasp across the town council. (gasps) Really, that's the condition. But if we do this, all their livestock and possessions will eventually be ours. We'll have them. They'll be ours. Come, let us agree to their terms. Let them settle here among us. So all the men in the town council agreed with Hamor and Shechem, and every male in the town was circumcised. But three days later, when their wounds were still sore, likely quite an understatement, wounds still sore, Two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, who were Dinah's full brothers, took their swords, entered the town without opposition. Of course there's no opposition. All the guys are laying around trying to recover. And then they slaughtered every male there, including Hamor and his son Shechem. Got him. They got him. They killed them with their swords, then took Dinah from Shechem's house and returned to their camp. Meanwhile, the rest of Jacob's sons arrived. Finding the men slaughtered, they plundered the town because their sister had been defiled there. They seized all the flocks and herds and donkeys, everything they could lay their hands on, both inside the town, outside in the fields. They looted all their wealth, plundered their houses. They also took all their little children and wives and led them away as captives. Afterward, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have ruined me. You've made me stink among all the people of this land among all the Canaanites and Perizzites. We are so few that they will join forces and crush us. I will be ruined. My entire household will be wiped out. But why should we let him treat our sister like a prostitute? They retorted angrily. Whoa, what a story. And all of a sudden, there goes the crystal clear sailing. Like, Right out the window. It is long gone. And remember, Jacob, he's supposed to be a what to all the nations. He's supposed to be a blessing to the nations. And you'd hardly call that scene at Shechem a blessing, would you? 
That's more like what we would call a curse, isn't it? And all of this, after such a transformative wrestle with God, God changed Jacob. Jacob says, I'm going with you, God. I'm going only with you, God. And now this. Jacob, all of a sudden, in an instant, has been made a stink among the very nations he is supposed to be a blessing to. What in the world happened? What in the world happened? And there's a very strong temptation to say, well, Jacob didn't have anything to do with his daughter getting raped. He didn't have anything to do with his sons conning the men of Shechem into getting circumcised and then killing them all off and then pillaging their town. It's really, really tempting to let Jacob off the hook and say, it's not his problem. He didn't do that stuff. His hands don't have blood on them. He didn't make anything stink. His kids did. His sons did. He didn't. It's really tempting. I actually almost made that mistake even as I was prepping this message, but I got to show you that that's not at all the case. Look at the early verses of chapter 35 of Genesis. And after all this has happened up here, this whole fiasco, the whole stench, then God said to Jacob, get ready and move to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now catch this. So Jacob told everyone in his household, Get rid of all your pagan idols, purify yourselves, and put on clean clothing. We're now going to Bethel, where I will build an altar to the God who answered my prayers when I was in distress. He has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all their pagan idols and earrings, and he buried them under the great tree near Shechem. Now, do you understand what's going on there? All of a sudden, Jacob's lost. He's released his vice-like grip on God. The very vice-like grip on God that was the crux of his transformation as a result of the wrestling match with God all the way back at the Jabbok River. Because you see, instead of Jacob and instead of his family and instead of his household, all of them honoring God, obeying God, being an example of what it looks like to know and serve and cling to the one true living God, Yahweh, what do they do? They settle into Shechem, this horrible place, a place marked by idolatry, which is the worship of idols. They settle into Shechem, which is a place marked by incredible immorality. They settle into this place marked by overt mythology, and they settle right in, and what do you know? They just get swept right up. They get swept into everything that was the exact opposite of what God had called Jacob and his descendants to be about. Jacob lost his grip on God. He let it go. And he and his family and his entire household, they're now paying the price. They're now together facing that music. And it forces the question, begs the question, why? Why is the man whose name got changed to Israel, which means, remember, the one who perseveres with God, why is that guy all of a sudden revert to his old Jacob ways? which if you remember is all about grasping heels and all about cunning deception. Why does he go from Israel, the one who perseveres with God, back to Jacob, grasping heels, cunning deception? Why does he go back? 
And why do we go back? Why do I go back? Why do we go back to our same old stuff after we've encountered God, after we've supposedly been changed, after we've supposedly been transformed, after we've supposedly been renewed, after we've supposedly been made different? Why do we, I, us, why do we go back? Like we go off and we have some transformative spiritual experience with God. We're on the mountaintop with God. We're moved and we're stirred and we're convinced that we're not ever, ever going to be the same. Right? We're driving stakes in the ground with God all over the place. We're making promises. We're determined, as determined as we've ever been to make these sweeping changes in our lives. We're vowing stuff to God, pledging stuff to God and then we go back. And pretty soon, we're walking in the same old ruts that we declared to God that we'd never even look at again, let alone ever walk in. Why? Why do we fall backward when our entire focus is fixed forward? Why? And I'd ask this. Could it be with Jacob and perhaps with us that so often it's our very best intentions, it's all our moral strivings, it's all our high ideals that actually cause us to revert. It actually causes us to fall back. Could it be? You know, phrases like, just do it. Phrases like, give it your best shot. Don't those sort of subtly whisper to us that God's ways can come to pass in our innermost beings through a sort of holy devout resolution and our protestant work ethic just pull yourself up by your bootstraps let's go you can do this just get about it just decide just dig in but truth be told that's not even close to how god's transformation shows up in our hearts or in our lives just ask anyone who's ever tried it they'll tell you you run out of gas, you can't sustain that level of striving, and pretty soon, what do you know, you, you fall back. Just like Jacob fell back, and it's just the same deal as it's always been. Same addiction, same struggle, same pitfall, same rut. But what do we know about Jacob? Jacob thrived when he was clinging to God, right? He got up from that wrestling match with the God of the universe, and he's going, God, I'm with you. I'm hanging on to you with everything I am. I'm not letting go of you. You do your thing. I'm going with you all the way until you tell me. I'm going with you. And then pretty quick, Jacob's whole household is worshiping idols. They're not clinging to God. Quite the opposite, actually. And it's true for Jacob and it's true for us that if we're ever going to be transformed in the way that God desires to transform us from the core of our being into every other space in our lives, then our undivided attention must not be on our behaviors, on our strivings, on our performance, but rather our entire attention must be fixed on God alone, fixed on worshiping Him, fixed on His holiness fix on him changing us precisely how and when he will change us 
because you can't change you. Only God can truly change you. Only God can truly change me. One guy says it this way. Holiness, which is becoming more and more like God, does not depend on all your own exertions and your own inner progress. Everything depends on your being willing to honor God and let him work in your life. Simply to stand still and let him be the Holy One who will have first place in your life above all men and things. And then the other, which is holiness, will come of itself. He goes on and says, Luther once spoke of the same effect saying that one does not need to command a stone which is lying in the sun to be warm. It becomes warm quite of itself. You see, we can't just outgrow old sins, nor can we just sort of outgrow our propensity to sin. But what we absolutely can and must be growing in is our ability to just cling to God just cling to him and for Jacob just like for us our ever long suffering God who has been enduring humanity's fumbles and foibles since the very beginning of time he deals with our falling back he deals with all of our reverting with patience and with love always detesting our sin and yet having paid for it with the greatest price of all, the life of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. 